I am here because I believe the machinery of democracy, and my whole company believes this, the machinery of democracy must be supported. And it starts with constituent interaction. It starts with asking a question and getting an answer. That's the first part. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Alex Kutz, the founder and CEO of IndieGov, a nonpartisan company that provides constituent service software to elected officials which he likes to characterize as an operating system for representative democracy. Alex brought a long history in the world of tech entrepreneurship to this, including time at the political tech enterprises Countable and Brigade. We had a good and wide-ranging conversation about his career and how he's tackled building Indigov. Alex is a really good example of an experienced entrepreneur in the political space. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Alex Kutz at Indigov. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Alex, how are you today? Fantastic. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm just great. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Alex Kutz. I'm the CEO and founder of Indigov. We immigrated from Greece uh, into, into New York, uh, started the whole Kutz journey. But uh, my career has been spent on the professional side, basically building and scaling tech startups in the Bay Area. I've done that in spaces where I've been looking to apply technology to problems that face humanity, and we can find a virtuous application of technology. That's always been my goal in my career. So I've done things in the severe weather alerting space to try and save people's lives globally when it comes to lightning strikes and hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and things like that. Online crowdfunding for nonprofits. I've done some things in kind of gaming. I've done a bunch of things in health tech, biotech, and machine learning, all again aimed at using technology to help people make their lives better. And then that led me to Indigov. I started about eight years ago. I very much fell out of love with the Bay Area uh, because i kind of learned that or believe that most companies in San Francisco are applying technology to problems that don't actually help people. I think in many ways, the Bay Area has become the world Olympics of value creation rationalization, as I like to say. What that means to me is that there are companies that are providing absolutely no societal value whatsoever, but are doing these Olympic level contortions and gymnastics to rationalize their products, say, hey, we're actually saving the world by helping people store files in the cloud. Isn't that, isn't that what you just did about your career? <laughs> you just like characterized all of the early startups as protecting people against severe weather. And yeah, that's totally fair. My goal generally in life is to escape hypocrisy, which is impossible to fully escape. 
if those companies were applied, the, my involvement with those companies, I applied that same filter to them. But it's always subjective, right? In terms of what you think you're able to accomplish. I mean, life is very complicated. And so is Silicon Valley, I, I take it. And I'm certain that your background, which is also um, University of Maryland uh, business degree and, and then an MBA, and all that time in all those businesses, that's a lot of preparation for your own startup, huh? It is, yeah, although startup founders will tell you, and this is not my first company, but most will tell you that nothing prepares you for starting a company. It's basically like sprinting a marathon while crying a little bit, but not letting anyone else see that you're crying. And I think actually scaling a company during COVID is <laughs> much more difficult and a little bit more emotional strain. But yeah, I'd love to believe that it prepared me. That'd be nice. I, I was just talking to a friend who has very much scaled a company about running a marathon in which he injured his back but he was determined to finish it and he did and has suffered from a bad back ever since. I, I wonder if that isn't the metaphor <laughs> that we yeah. can work with. I, I'd love to believe that this isn't going to cause lasting traumatic injuries that will stick with me forever, but uh, <laughs> maybe I'm just an optimist. <laughs> no, we have, we have a great time. It sounds like a lot of the work you did was on the product front. Uh, it, and, and to me, that is... Uh, if it's not the CEO, that's the most interesting and central role in a software as a service type company and many other companies. Do you have thoughts about what makes a good product manager and what you think about that role? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I actually I've been teaching product management as a skill for um, over a decade now, and I've hired and trained a lot of PMs in my career. But before I get to that, I'll just say the way I came to product was a little bit non-traditional in the sense that I started off in a business development background. But I believed that everything that I was selling looked like crap. So I taught myself to be a UX designer uh, so that I could sell things that looked better, that would be easier to sell. And then I would hand the designs off to a PM and they would screw up the implementation. I was like, well, shoot, I got to become a PM now. My path to product manager, which kind of dovetails with what I think makes a good PM, is I was chasing the execution of a beautiful experience, something that was a good value-driven experience for users. That's what a good PM is ultimately. The job of the PM is a lot of things. It's communication, it's project management, it's engineering conversations and scoping. But in reality, your job is to be the chief advocate for the user, to understand them better than anybody in the world, have unique vision of what they need, and then figure out how to execute against that inside of the company. A lot of PMs don't actually know that they aren't PMs because they focus on project management. They get too abstracted away from the end use case. The entire purpose of a company is to solve problems for people. So that's one thing that makes a good one. The other is systems thinking approach. PMs are a position that probably shouldn't exist. I've been saying that for almost 15 years now. I think that PM, the job is too integrative for most people to be able to do well. And so what happens in most organizations is the true product management job is diffused across multiple departments, even other people that have the title of a PM. Being able to systems think and bring all that diffused responsibility and opinions into a central roadmap is a really difficult thing to do. It's basically like doing a mental sensitivity analysis of a business and prioritizing everybody's needs alongside your own vision, which is hard. The other one that I've seen for like top 1% PMs is they're incredibly good at communication. Everybody around them already has heard everything they're about to say before they say it. That's what a good communicator is to me, repetition. You tell people what you're going to tell them, you tell them that thing, then you remind them about the thing that you just told them, and then later you remind them about that thing you reminded them about telling them this thing before. And so it's this constant state of repetition. Good PMs are communicators in chief. They're little CEOs of their own product fiefdom. Uh, so I have to be very good at that. Uh, there's a lot of other skills I can get into more technically, but those are a couple top of mind. Yeah, I, it makes me 
want to ask you about the relationship between the chief product manager and the CEO, because there is obviously a huge alignment and there can be a rift when the CEO is chasing particular opportunities that conflict with the already established line of development that's in place, for example. How do you think about that relationship? That's a a really great question. So I've been on both sides of it. I've been the uh, irritating CEO and I've been the virtuous head of product trying to hold the- And vice versa. (laughs) Marching battery, exactly. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I think that the CEO sees a much- so as you ascend inside of the hierarchy of a company, you're basically widening the aperture through which you look at the business, through which you look at the market, and literally everything that happens day to day is viewed through that wider aperture. I think product is the, the second widest aperture inside the company generally because you're looking at sales and engineering and everything else. And you're right, there's often friction there. The CEO doesn't see things the same way. And for me, we have an incredible head of product in Indigo. Her name is Colleen. You have to have two people that don't have big egos. And I think we both fit in that category, at least I'm sure we'd say that about ourselves, <laughs> that it makes tough conversations a lot easier. I have the smallest <laughs> ego in this room. Just the small, smallest ego, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's really key that, that ego gets in between a lot of those conversations when it comes to prioritization, control of engineering teams and roadmaps, which sink a lot of conversations before they even start. So there's no way to have the conversation well if that's not there. I think the other one is you have to do your best as a CEO to kind of widen everyone else's aperture around you to look at the same things that you're looking at. If you hoard and protect information and other people can't see what you see, then it's hard for them to empathize with that. Just as an aside, a brilliant person once told me that empathy in organizations goes sideways and downwards. It never goes upwards. And so I think it's incumbent upon a CEO to kind of help with that a little bit. So I think that's a huge one. The other one is you have to really clearly state your goals. And so at a company, every company I've ever run, I start with what I call uber meta ethereal goals. Like we want to be a hundred billion dollar company in like 10 years or five years. And then you work in step functions back from that extremely high level goal into like, okay, well, in order to do that, that means I need to achieve this over this period of time. But in order to do that, I have to achieve this by the end of the year. In order to do that, I have to achieve this by the end of the quarter and so on and so forth. And so everything in the company has to tie a causal link from what everyone is optimizing from all the way back down to what has to be done today. And that's how we do goal setting at Indigo. I mean, when you talked about creating a beautiful experience, that resonated with me as a goal, especially in the democracy space. When you talked about getting to 100 million, I lost a certain amount of interest as like a potential employee or whatever, just just because my prejudice is that talking about the size of the company doesn't really reach the customer. It doesn't really reach the employee, except for maybe some that have a lot of stock. You know, how do you, I mean, I I like though that you are like the, both of those things are rattling around in your head and, and maybe they need to be in a funded company with big ambitions like you have, but what is really central for you? Yeah. So you and I both know, cause you, you've been you've been in the political space and political tech for quite some time, that there's a lot of people who are pure idealism with no business model. And then there's people that are pure business model with no idealism, right? The truth is the two should be symbiotic to some degree. To be honest with you, I don't really care about financial targets in terms of what motivates me to get out of bed and work on Indigo day to day. I am extremely concerned about the state of democracy, which we can get into in a little bit. But that's really what motivated me to start the company was how do we help and strengthen democracy? How do we help democracy invest in technology to do the things that it's supposed to do better? 
for us, in order to do that, achieving growth targets and revenue targets gives us the strategic optionality to continue to serve that mission. And so one is a means to another. I've seen a lot of people try and do civic and gov tech companies as nonprofits or double bottom line businesses or any of those things, public benefit corporations. I think that's really hard to do. I think it's really hard to attract investment, to fuel the vision, to keep moving forward if you can't build a profitable business at the same time. But that being said, it's a really hard thing to do because for most businesses, there's a negative correlation or a negative relationship between mission attainment and revenue and monetization. At Indigo, we built the company intentionally so that there's a positive relationship between accomplishing our mission and driving more revenue. Every single customer we bring on doesn't pull away from the mission. It strengthens it and pushes it forward. But it took me years of incubating and thinking about the business to be able to get it to that place. And it wasn't just me, obviously, it was an entire team of people. But that's rare and really difficult to build. I, I want to ask you some questions out of curiosity about your pre-Indigov uh, route, um, just so people know you a little bit better. Um, tell me about, how do you say it, Razu? Oh, Razu, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Razu is an Australian word that means a coin of little value. So if you're poor, uh, you'll say, I don't even have two Razus to rub together. Uh, that's how that was started. Um, so Razu was a, was a very early crowdfunding platform uh, when crowdfunding was a much newer concept than it is today. I think you've, a lot of people today are much more familiar with the Indiegogos and the Kickstarters and things like that. Razu was early. And Razu was designed only to help charities raise money online. That was the entire purpose of it. It was a charity would have a website on Rezu uh, that was automatically there for them. And donors could find them uh, through the website and then make a donation directly to them. We basically built a really interesting model. It was almost like a Jerry Lewis uh, telethon uh, online that allowed people to create giving days. And so we create these massive giving days across the U.S. that would concentrate people's attention around a small group of nonprofits and drive a reward-based fundraising drive. And we had days where we'd raise eight, 10, 12 million dollars for nonprofits inside of cities or communities, which we were really proud of. And so we'd run these giving days thematically and geographically across the country. It was an interesting thing. I learned a lot about philanthropy at that company. One of the things that was fascinating, but I didn't expect going into it was that, and it led me ultimately to leave that industry, was that I, I came to believe that online charitable donations actually diminished a donor's involvement in totality with that nonprofit. And so there's a theory in behavioral psychology called moral licensing. It's tied to, there was some report I saw years ago that Prius owners, no offense if you're a Prius owner, were more likely to commit violent road crime or something like that. And the thinking was because I drive a Prius, I can use that moral licensing over here and I can be bad over here because I've been good over here. Same with like, I can eat this entire sheet cake because I worked out today. With online charitable giving, weird metaphor, let's bring it back. With online charitable giving, when I make a quick donation of like 25 bucks through a website, I get that moral licensing token and I'm less likely to go to an event. I may be less likely to donate again. And so it created some weird longitudinal effects with philanthropy that I ultimately felt were against what I got into it for, uh, which is why I don't continue to work there. But it was an interesting company. You had a short stint at Brigade. Tell me about that. Yeah, Brigade's fascinating. So at the time, I was building a civic engagement company uh, on my own, originally called Indigov. And it was meant to be a consumer product to productize democracy. And so basically, I was like, well, to your question before, if I was a product manager of the government and I wanted people to engage with my content, what would I build? And so I started designing and building interfaces to get people to read bills and reach out to their elected representative. No political messaging, no editorialization, just primary data put in front of people in an interesting way so they could make up their own minds and then get civically engaged. Around that time, I met the founding team of Brigade, Sean Parker, who'd come off of Facebook and a couple others. 
And they made a really compelling pitch to join that company because Sean had a fascinating idea that Facebook was the social graph, but had become a political discourse platform without necessarily being designed to be that. And so he was going to create the political social graph, a platform designed specifically for political engagement uh, so that it wouldn't deal with a lot of the consequences that Facebook was and is continuing to deal with today. He also had a really interesting idea that through this social network, you could get people to take collective action, which I also thought was really interesting in small nuclear friend groups. Like maybe I'm not going to take action with people you know, across the world that I don't know, but I will with my five or seven really close friends and we could align around those things. And so I joined that company in a senior product role again to kind of help quarterback it through launch, but ultimately disagreed with Sean and the company about the fundamental assumption about human behavior that was driving the business. And so every company has an assumption about human behavior that drives the model. At Twitter, it was that because Ev Williams had founded Blogger before and he wanted the entire world to blog. He thought it'd be a better place if they did. His notion coming out of that was that the most terrifying thing to an artist is a blank canvas. And the bigger the canvas is, the more terrifying it is. I don't know how to fill up a blog post because I'm not a writer. If you shrink the size of the canvas down to a sticky tab or 140 characters, it's much easier for people to create art. And that's what created microblogging. I'm obviously cutting out a bunch of steps here, but fundamentally, that's what it was. It was a really good assumption, drove a very positive model. Sean's belief at Brigade and the company's belief was that people wanted to broadcast their civic identity to their friends and they wanted to see their friend's civic identity. So meaning your entire political belief spectrum broadcasted to your network so I could overlay those belief spectrums on top of each other in a Venn diagram, so to speak, through which I could take collective action. Now, that sounds really compelling and interesting, but the problem is that at least what we found, what my opinion is, is that the vast majority of Americans already know what their friends think and also don't want to broadcast their entire political belief spectrum to other people. They have three to four things, maybe, that they're interested in talking about as kind of a self-branding kind of talk to your friends about who you are, but they don't want you to know everything uh, about themselves and what they believe. And so that limited people's willingness to participate with the tool in a big way and ultimately undercut the, the ability for a company to be successful. I later purchased Brigade at another company, which was an interesting experience after I left, but they spent a lot of money doing a lot of really interesting things and it unfortunately didn't work out. And do you think it didn't work out because of that assumption about human behavior or was it deeper than Foundationally, that? Foundationally, yeah. yeah. I think that's what it was. I, I also think the company was in many ways the kind of opposite of a lean startup. I think they spent, uh, and I, I have to say we, because I was at the company, even though I wasn't in the room for those decisions, but um, I think we spent a lot of money uh, too fast. I think really good companies generally are built counter-cyclically, where you're extremely disciplined about what you're building. Things have to work because you don't have a lot of chances. If you have a lot of chances, you can take a lot of bad ones. It was a little bit too much of a fat startup, I think, as Reid Hoffman would call it. I'm a big fan of lean startups. Is the company that you referenced having bought Brigade, is that Countable? When I was at Countable, we bought Brigade. Right. So, and, and is that Bart Myers Countable? Yeah, my yeah. man. I love that guy. Great I, person. I, I had him on the show, uh, let's see, back in 2019. Interesting oh, yeah. story. Um, tell me about that. What was it like at Countable? What did you do while you were there? Yeah. So first off, Bart is just a lovely wonderful person to his core, which is one of the reasons I joined that company. I just like him so much uh, and continue to do it. We're, we're very good friends. But um, Countable is really You're not saying that about Sean Parker, is that? Um... Sean's a great guy too. <laughs> uh, he's a little bit harder to get to know. Uh, he's very, very smart. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Bart, Bart's just, I spent a lot more personal time with Bart, let's put it that way. Bart and I have traveled all over the country together, built some weird stuff together. Um, but anyway, yeah, so so Bart uh, had been, had, been doing a lot of things accountable that I wish Brigade would do. 
And so if I had, like you said, the, the, the friction between like the CEO and the investors and the product people, that was what I felt at Brigade, very much that friction. And so Accountable, there was a perfect alignment from the CEO and founder of that company with what I wanted to accomplish in terms of getting people to engage more with civic content. And I thought he had a platform that was really virtuous and had a great line that could be developed into something with significant scale. And that's what we did together. At Accountable, I got to do all the things that I would have done at Brigade had I stayed. And it worked really well, uh, really nicely. What was next after Countable? What was in your career between Countable and starting Indigov? Yeah, so um, I'd started incubating Indigov while I was before I was at Brigade, and so it is was always kind of a long term project that had been working for for years and years and years. So I've, I've been working on this for probably about almost a decade, so quite a while. So while I was accountable and really while I was at Brigade, I had started advising members of U.S. Congress because through platforms I designed, whether it was Indigo the first time around or Brigade or others, accountable, I had built and designed experience that has sent over 75 million messages to elected representatives across the U.S. But the problem is users through our apps would then reach out to their elected representative, but they would never get a response. And that really pissed me off. So I started flying back to D.C. and just randomly walking to congressional offices and being like, so what do you guys do here? Why don't you answer people? And what I found was horrifying. They were using technology built a very long time ago that had not kept pace with a private market. I'm being very charitable in my description here. And they were ultimately failing to do their job. We ran a study where we sent in messages to every office in the house, and we saw only a third of offices responded at all within 180 days. And of the ones that did, the average constituent response time was 83 days. That's what the house was doing. And that really angered me. Those were individual messages, not batch messages? Yeah, yeah, individual messages. We sent them as an individual message through a web form, uh, as opposed to through like the CWC API, which I think you're aware of, uh, which is the API programmatic means of sending a message to congressional offices, which get treated differently than what I call organic civic interaction. These are all organic. And so I created a whole infographic for that and started going around Congress. And I just, I didn't intend to start Indigo in the way that it was. I intended to take the existing vendors and be like, hey, listen, like if you guys just build these things, that will be better. And so I started advising Congress and then making recommendations to existing vendors that were serving that ecosystem in a category of software called constituent management software. And so think like a CRM for a private business, but purpose built for an elected representative. And unfortunately, all those companies told me to go pound sand. As one of our advisors likes to say, I wrote a 65 page memo to one of them and redesigned their entire interface for them for free. And they wouldn't do it. And so I rage founded Indigov to replace what I saw as a, a lack of movement. Which one did you send that to out of curiosity? Oh, I can't remember. Who remembers <laughs> that far back? I have followed the constituent service software companies since the ah, mid to late 80s. Some of them lasted a long time. The Quorum, some of them came at later with newer interfaces like the Fireside 21s. And, and a lot of them have been bought up recently by different players in the space. Do you not see anybody with good software outside of yours for constituent service management? I do not, primarily because these platforms were built from an inward looking outward perspective for the most part. Uh, the platforms you just mentioned were either built by defense contractors. Yeah, right. There's just... yeah. Or staffers, right? Yeah. Not technologists. And so our vision was like, take the knowledge from what's happening inside the office and then blend it with everything that's happening in the private market. And so we've done things that I don't think the other vendors had thought of and have kind of pushed them to consider other feature sets. But I think it's very difficult for them to keep pace because we're moving so quickly. But no, I don't see a lot of good software. And, and more broadly across the U.S., 
people aren't using software. They're throwing an immense amount of human suffering at problems that technology companies have already solved, but they don't have access to those solutions. And they also don't work for them because a CRM, customer relationship management software, is not designed for a governmental office. It's designed to get people to buy things, to progress them down a value chain towards purchase behavior. That's not what elected representatives do. Because my original intent was just take a private market CRM and put it on the hill to replace these vendors, not start a company. But what I found is the closest private market analog for what these people did was not actually CRMs, but customer service software. But even customer service software covered less than 12% of the required features to actually do what these people needed. And so we built Indigov out of necessity, uh, not because we, we necessarily wanted to. We just needed to, to fix the problem. So that seems like the seed of the founding story. Tell me about like turning it into a company. I mean, so you've identified a need. That's a very good start as you well know, something that needs a solution that, that matters in the world and uh, that you cared about and that you had a lot of background to apply to it. But what were the steps you took to raise money, hire staff, start getting customers? How did it go from the beginning? Oh, we're going deep into the trauma. Okay. All right, let's do this. You loved uh, it. You loved it. I, I did. I did love it. Um, well, so I think um, a lot of founders raise money before they're ready. And they raise money without really understanding what the long-term unit economics of their business look like, or they try to, to raise money. With us, I fully bootstrapped the company and building the product, launching it. We were revenue generating before we decided to raise money. And so we didn't raise money in the seed or conceptual stage. And quite frankly, in GovTech, because that's not something that most venture capitalists invest in, I don't think that would have been possible. No matter how charming and loquacious I may have been on a good day, there's no way people could have pulled that off or anybody could have. And so we we're revenue generating. Even at that point, we debated whether or not we were going to raise money. We were saying, well, you know, why don't we just keep it as is and we'll run it as a lifestyle business. So you're saying we. So mm -hmm. you, who is we at this pre-funding stage? How yeah, did you, it was yeah. a very small team. Yeah, uh, Me and my co-founder and a couple of folks. Uh, I brought on our, our CFO very early. Just really people that I'd acquired in my career that were fantastic. Uh, and so it was a really small group of people. And so we kind of built it with a, with a skeletal engineering team uh, really getting moving. And then to be honest, like the, the fundraising and scaling part of it was came kind of naturally and logically. Uh, I think good companies, the market and the customers pull things out of the business, right? And so we needed to scale up and get more engineers because our customers like, ooh, what if it did this? Ooh, what if it did this? And so we designed Indigov and our entire feature roadmap came from requests from our users. It didn't come from like a lab in Silicon Valley where someone's thinking big ideas and pulling it through. We were sitting in offices with staff, designing features, launching them. I was designing them, we're getting built, we're launching them, I'm QA testing them along with our users. It was like a very fluid process, which is one of the best ways to start a company. You do it with no separation between you and the user. And then the fundraising was actually quite, quite crazy. I've raised a lot of venture capital before in my career, so I'm not a stranger to that process per se, but in GovTech, I'd never done it. And I also don't see a lot of large blue chip venture funds that have GovTech companies in their portfolio. They're not smart on this market. They know that government has a lot of spend, but they believe that government is an impossible place to break into and the sales cycle times are outrageously long. And so the economics for a venture level return, what qualifies you for venture capital would never be achievable. We had to fight that narrative and we had to fight it with growth. The company grew organically very quickly, which made it impossible for people to look at us and say, you don't have something here. This doesn't work out. That process was interesting. I think um, it ended up being a lot faster and easier than I kind of anticipated, but I think I anticipated the worst possible scenario. But we built the pitch deck, we tested it with people, we did all the things that you should do in raising, like you pitch people that you're least interested in at the beginning to get some feedback. 
you run it through a bunch of different audiences to see what their issues are. I think you also have to have very, very strong answers to problems that people are likely to bring up. And so when a venture capitalist asks, well, like, how do you feel about the procurement cycle in government? How do you get around that? It's not enough to say, well, point one, two, and three. It's you have to come so strong over the top with conviction. It's like, well, actually, that's the old world of thinking. You don't understand how private market SaaS has now infiltrated government with FedRAMP and TexRAMP and CalRAMP and all those other things that allow for rapid acquisition of technology. And so you have to really come out strong with all people's traditional objections. So we did that really well. The scaling of the team, the last part of your question was probably the hardest part. I've built a, a good number of companies at this point, and I will tell you, you learn the same lesson over and over again, that people are everything. The founder and the idea are a very small part of the overall performance of the company. You have to find people that bring their ideas and then own the outcome, build it and care about it and you know, are accountable for it. That's the only way to be successful. And so the first 12 hires at a company are crucial because that sets the tone for the culture for the rest of the life of the company. It's very hard to get away from that. The company culture is the weighted human average of the people that you have, heavier weight towards the founders and the people that come early. And so we specifically hired for people that were really smart, but were low ego. And we still do that to this day. Low ego, high competence is the number one thing that we hire for at Indigov. And then accountability and ownership are kind of the next ones. I still interview every single candidate before we make offers, even to the point now where we're triple digits in terms of team size. I still interview everybody and I will regularly pull people out of the interview process if I don't think that they exhibit those traits because we don't want to build the wrong type of team. Now, it'll, it'll bring us back. I've looked at constituent service software pre-you. What would I be surprised about to see in yours and just sort of characterize for someone who isn't familiar with the space, mm-hmm. what's the problem and how are you solving it? Yeah. So the old guard or legacy solutions that you've probably seen are extremely complicated interfaces. We're talking 15 different global navigation items, like 45 dropdowns in every single one. The staff that use the systems that you're referencing end up ignoring more features than they actually use. And so all of that stuff that I don't use creates cognitive load or cognitive drag inside the interface that makes it really hard to learn, really hard to train in, very hard to use on a day-to-day basis. Ours is extremely simplified relative to that we eliminated a lot of things that people had to do manually and automate them. And so automation is also a big part of what we do so that we can minimize the number of clicks and effort that it takes for an office to respond to a constituent. In the old world, the legacy solutions that you're talking about, many of them were originally built for direct mail, not for an email-based or digital communication-based world. And so even in the way that some of the systems that are used on the Hill today work, messages come in, we have to upload letter templates from Microsoft Office in order to get them in there. And then we have to format them. And then we have to put them in an outbox, which was designed originally for printing out and sending mail when we are emailing people. That's crazy. That's not what these people are getting. 99.9% of the incoming communication is digital now. And so we're digital first. We do an enormous amount of automated filtering of messages when they come in so we can tell people whether or not they are in fact constituents they're reaching out or they're from a different state. Some elected representatives across the country are actually not legally allowed to respond to people that are not their constituents because that's considered campaigning. And so a lot of offices have to manually sift through to figure out whether or not someone is a constituent. We tell them automatically. A lot of people don't know this about their democracy, and you referenced this earlier. I think it's actually a horrifying fact. Up to 80% or more of messages to incoming congressional offices, to congressional offices in general, are not actually coming from constituents directly. They're coming through advocacy organizations that are looking to affect legislative outcomes by wallpapering offices with hundreds or thousands of identical messages over and over again. In the old world, people have to manually sort through thousands of identical messages. 
in order to get to casework and organic civic interaction where people are really asking for help. And so we can automate nearly all of that. And we use some pretty clever ways to do that. But that means that the office can spend more time on casework, more time helping your grandmother with an issue, unlocking benefits from the VA or helping your neighbor with an immigration case. That's the whole goal of what we do. So automation is a huge part of it. We are also the first cloud vendor that U.S. Congress has ever approved for uh, constituent services. And so we're much faster and more performant. We also have a downloadable mobile application for iOS and Android. And so it just looks and feels different. Lastly, because it's super simple, it's extremely easy to learn. A lot of our customers learn it with basically no training. And if they do, it's minimal training relative to what other platforms have to do. So simple, fast, automated, mobile, a modern piece of technology. But the basic thing is it's for handling the communication between a constituent and the office. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so the platform, just to describe it in a little more depth, so we ingest communication from every channel through which it can come into an office, whether that comes in through an email, a web form, an internal file share, or even social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, what have you. We pull all of that into the same platform, neatly organize it and categorize it for them and allow them to respond to it very quickly. We can mediate issues not only with constituents, but back and forth with agencies inside the tools. They can talk to the VA and the IRS as opposed to going over to Outlook or a different program. They can do it all in one place, neatly organized. We even integrate with their phone system. So we can automatically log phone calls to a constituent's profile so I can look up and say, hey, I actually helped this person with this thing three months ago. Let me update them and see how they're doing. And so it's basically taking government offices and turning them into best-in-class customer service divisions. We then allow people the ability to communicate proactively with their constituent by pre-filling their account with constituent information and contact info. And so if I want to reach out to veterans because there's a bill that is coming out that dramatically expands their benefits, I can reach out to them from the side of Indigov. Local business owners, teachers, police officers, whatever group is important to my legislative agenda, I can engage them with an issue that's important to them. There's an adjacent set of software called advocacy software, which I glean that you don't think much much of from the way you describe, you know, batch mails coming out of them, but it's a, but it is, you know, it's a broad category and there's a number of companies that have done well in there. Tell me about the relationship between that space and, and your space, because there are some companies that are in both now and you're having to receive their communications. Yeah. How do you think about that? that boundary? And are you going to be on both sides of it? Yeah. So to be clear, I don't think that advocacy organizations mobilizing their base to reach out to elected representatives is a bad thing. I don't. There is some moral hazard when you create an economy, like an economic equation around advocacy, whether or not you are paying people to engage, or these are really robust driven campaigns that that can create a distorted view of constituent opinion. That's where I think things can get really dangerous, but not everybody does that. Not all advocacy organizations do that. So if the Sierra Club is looking to engage their audience, the Rainforest Action Network around some bill that could be really important to driving that issue forward, they should have the ability to communicate with elected representatives. I think that's a good thing. I think where things get also problematic, and this is, this is a good product level conversation, democracy generally requires, a, it is a participatory form of government. It requires investment from constituents to understand who the representatives are, to vote them in and out of office based on issues that are important to them. It is a higher investment form of government than autocracy, as an example, where you give the strong man uh, the ability to make decisions for you or populism or something like that. That is a lower form of government, in my opinion. It is a less participatory, less expensive form of government. It is cheaper. And an expensive form of government like what we have, expensive from attention and time perspective, 
it is incumbent upon us to make an investment as constituents in understanding what's going on again to engage. If an advocacy organization makes it too easy for somebody to engage to the point where they're engaging without knowing it or they're engaging without understanding what they are triggering, that message to elect a representative, that's problematic. And I've seen campaigns where people do that, where it's like one click, and I didn't know that this is sending a message to my elected representative. And Congress tries to regulate that through the CWC program, and they will kick vendors off their network for doing things like that on a regular basis. I've also seen some vendors pre-fill in erroneous information about constituents to satisfy fields that can send in messages in mass to elected representatives. So those are the ones I have a problem with, not advocacy organizations in total. It's the ones that are abusing the system. Now, that being said, we will never find ourselves on both sides of it because Indigov is a nonpartisan company, not bipartisan. And so we will never advocate for an issue whatsoever, nor will we express political opinions on behalf of the company. We don't do that because we believe in democracy. We believe in a pluralistic form of government. And because we provide the tools for people to manage their democracy, their constituency, any political opinion or decision that we make uh, jeopardizes the entire mission and brand positioning of the company. And so that's why we've never sold to a campaign, nor will we ever do that. We only sell to democratically elected officials to empower them with the tools they need to do their job. Tell me about how you got purchase. Who was your first client, your second client, and how did you grow from there? How did you find success and where are you at this point in in penetrating the market? Yeah, yeah. So um, the way we started was actually really interesting. Um, I found a small number of members of the U.S. House of Representatives who really wanted better technology in their offices. I think we do ourselves an enormous disservice in this country because the vast majority of our conception of our government is made up from shows like House of Cards and Veep, where we fetishized American democracy or at best turned it into a parody that not only insults the the importance of the institution, but but warps our knowledge of who these people are. And so if I ask the average American, like, you know, sketch out in your mind, like what a member of Congress looks like, you get kind of a bad sketch more often than not. But In my experience, the members that we worked with at the beginning and members in general are patriotic people from their community that want to help the people that they live around. And that's why they got into higher office because of a virtuous and patriotic need. And that's what we found. We found people that were those people, plus they also were really interested in technology. And they requested more of the institution, which kind of forced the institution to consider new vendors. What was weird at the beginning, and this is not the case anymore, but we found Republican offices much more receptive to new technology than Democratic offices, which we didn't expect. And coming from San Francisco, I extra didn't expect that. I expected Democrats to jump all over and be super tech forward, but it was exactly the opposite. It was a lot harder for us to get our initial Democratic customers where today the company is kind of even split 50-50. We don't have one party bend or another. But at the beginning, it really worried me because I never wanted anyone to see us as a Republican or Democratic tool. It had to be by, you know, multipartisan. And so we started that way. The U.S. House, we grew like wildfire. People started seeing the tool. It's a very small nuclear place. They had friends coming to their office. Ooh, what's that? Oh, that looks awesome. What is that? Let me get a demo of that. And so it was pure word of mouth. We even to this day have barely done any marketing whatsoever. It's all been word of mouth because, again, it's a highly nuclear industry. Is that a pain to... um pull people off of existing systems with existing sets of data. I have some experience with this in my life and then put it into your thing or is that smooth? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was terrible at the beginning (laughs) because it didn't really happen very often before us. There's a theory in user experience design called path dependency, right? It's basically the same thing as like inertia or gravity. It's that someone's been doing something some like one particular way for a long time. And so the pain to change is much higher just because they're very used to it. And even if it sucks and it's the bane of their existence every day, it makes them miserable. It's still their misery. Uh, Another way to put that is the Ikea effect. 
and there's nothing wrong with Ikea furniture. I have a lot of Ikea furniture, but uh, it's not particularly high quality furniture. A lot of it's particle board coming from a family of carpenters. Uh, you know, it's not great stuff. But the fact that you assembled it means that it's your piece of crap and you feel it very attached to it. Uh, and so the Ikea effect increases that. And so government also has a problem with that because they tend to build things internally, even if they're not done perfectly or well in some cases, they become very attached to it. So yeah, it was definitely difficult. I think one thing that I internalized early on was that government does not buy like the private market buys. As you probably know better than most people. Uh, the private market buys in a reward-seeking paradigm. So I buy marketing automation software to drive sales, right? I buy HR software to retain my employees. I'm reward-seeking. Government buys exactly the opposite. It's pain avoidance. They're not buying vitamins. They're buying antiseptic, uh, right? They're trying to protect themselves from negative consequence. And so in the use of these older tools, the legacy platforms, there was a lot of negative consequence that was happening. And so we magnified the negative consequence, brought it front and center, as opposed to let it just li live behind the scenes, like their average response time. That's why we did that testing, you know, constituents not getting messages at all, and then presented a solution to that problem. And so it was just a different orientation for selling, if that makes sense. It does. Um, you talked about it's a little challenging to raise money for what people think of as GovTech. You were able to do that, in fact, have to the tune of, if you if you believe things on the internet, $38 million so far, and maybe it's gone beyond that. Uh, when, when I looked at this space in the 90s, early 2000s, or long, long ago, it was kind of universally assumed to be a very small market with a very small number of customers. You got Congress, you got some number of state legislatures. I've heard you talk about in a different interview you did about like thinking about all of the citizens in a certain way as users, potential users, which raises the N quite a bit. But what is the size of this market and who's going to pay for software to serve as a service in a way that helps you build a hundred million dollar plus company like you mentioned earlier? Yeah, that's the billion dollar question. Um, well, let's look at the market by verticals. U.S. Congress is very small. Uh, there are 535 offices. You include the committees. There's some more. But if that market is the only market, it's never going to be a venture fundable business. And so you have to go out. And good companies grow in concentric circles to adjacent markets that exhibit similar behavior patterns, but a little bit more watered down. And so in the U.S. more broadly, at the state and local level, there are 570,000 elected officials 10,000 government agencies, 89,000 municipalities, 3,500 counties. There's an enormous market if you can figure out how to take what works for that and then adapt it to all those verticals. Now, that's a really difficult challenge. But the truth is, holistically, democracy is a service delivery and communication business. But people often don't look at it that way. And so for us, that's really the key. Is it how many people are reaching out to their government on a regular basis, requesting something of them and not getting a satisfactory response? And so to take the constituent angle... Do you get excited to go to the DMV? Are you excited to reach out to your local sanitation department when your recycling bins get stolen? No, you are guaranteed to have a terrible experience, right? Like it's a joke. It sounds like you are also interested in non-elected, uh, mm -hmm. supporting non-elected parts of the government. So like just- Appointed as well. Yeah. Appointed or just a cabinet agency or a part of a county's government that deals with health uh, you know, health services and has to service the people there. Is, is that right? I mean, do you, yeah. how broadly do you view this? I, I view it as very broad. I mean, I think, again, anywhere where government delivers service is a perfect avenue for the kind of thing that we do. 
Now, I will say I'm glossing over a lot of nuance there. These different markets need substantially different versions of the product and all kinds of things. And it's a really hard challenge to solve. Government is often a very difficult customer. And so you have to choose your customers at the beginning very carefully. Otherwise, your business will die. There was another company. uh, I can't remember the name offhand, but they were founded and then funded by a bunch of the Y Combinator folks out in San Francisco, which is like a brand name startup incubator. It's kind of the Harvard of startups. And they failed ultimately because they picked the wrong angle of approach, the wrong sequencing in the market, all those things. And the company died. Whereas I think they could have been successful had they gone different. It's again, a really hard problem. I think in government, go to market is much more important in many cases, even than product. That's coming from a product person. Uh, And so that's where the secret sauce kind of comes in. You've alluded a couple of times to wanting to talk about how this fits into democracy in a time that's quite challenging for democracy in the U.S. What are your thoughts in that regard? Yeah. So um, back to the founding seed story, I'm really terrified. I'm terrified for my family. I'm terrified for my community. And again, this is probably not dissimilar from a lot of other founders. They get uh, scared of things. I'm very worried about the state of democracy. What I've seen globally across the world is a dramatic retreat from democracy. I think Pew Research had done an amazing report on this about a year or two ago that I read as well. You're seeing these, these governments retract from it. And I think a renunciation of some of the aspects of globalization and liberalism across the world were, were problematic. Now, Putin, through his actions in Ukraine, have actually revitalized liberalism quite a bit, which is a really nice thing to see, unfortunately, in a terrible circumstance. But democracy is under threat. On the other side, I see autocracies investing very heavily in technology to control, suppress, and oppress people. If you look at the social credit scores in China, the monitoring of the internet, the great firewalls that are happening in a lot of Eastern European countries and in Asia, it is horrifying violation of civil rights, in my opinion, that's happening with the use of technology. Democracy, on the other hand, needs to leverage technology, but to do the things that it does well, which is to understand and communicate with and represent. And it is upsetting to me that there is not an industry of software designed to make democracy more functional, to scale it better. That's the challenge of our generation is how to make democracy scale better. It is the best or the least worst version of government ever invented, but it isn't scaling well to the size of population and the complexity of the government that we have. That is one of the few areas where I believe technology can actually help. I don't believe that technology can use AI to write policy or this or that, because not only do I think that's impossible, but I also think it's fundamentally unethical. And so the challenge for us is to find like an ethical avenue to apply technology to do something that democracy is designed to do and then do it really well and scale it. And so, you know, I think on the democracy side, you see an enormous influx of communication over the past five, 10 years, as there's been a fracturing of digital communication channels, an enormous increase in volume. Then during COVID with the Me Too movement and the civil rights movement and unemployment insurance requests and the economy having all the issues that it did, you saw another gigantic increase in incoming communication. These officers were completely ill-equipped to handle it. Not only that, they were ill-equipped to work in a remote world, and so they couldn't even access the tools to manage incoming communication in many cases. There are just all these like systemic issues that have to be solved. Now, the reason that these matter is that when I reach out to my elected representative, when I ask them for something, that is the only interaction I could have with my government this year. That is the user experience of democracy. And so for me, Whereas everyone that gets into politics is interested in policy writing, I'm not interested in policy or politics at all, truly. I have friends that are members of Congress, and when I meet them, I'll be completely unaware of them being in the news the past week because I don't even listen to it. 
I am here because I believe the machinery of democracy, and my whole company believes this, the machinery of democracy must be supported. And it starts with constituent interaction. It starts with asking a question and getting an answer. That's the first part. So if that's a little bit how we think about it. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's it's a big problem. Well, it, it answers a lot about how you think about it. And what, one of the things that is a challenge in this time, and I wonder how you think about this, is that one of the two political parties in the United States has a lot of elected representatives who are not friends of democracy. They vote in the U.S. Congress to not certify the results of a national election. And when you are providing them tools for constituent service, that redounds to their benefit electorally and helps them stay in power. So how do you think about like, so your kind of willful blindness about what is happening in some congressional offices, in some state offices, which I completely understand, like you're in a nonpartisan provider of tools to do constituent service, which is a, a good and, and noble thing to do. But when you have people not operating in good faith with respect to democracy, you are providing the tools you know, to any comer. How, is that, does that trouble you at all? Is there any conflict there? How do you think that through? Oh, sure. Um, but I don't think that that's specific to Indigov or anything that we're doing. What Everything that you just said is specific to democracy, right? There are people who will be voted into office in legitimate elections by people that they represent, regardless of you know the reasons why that happens. Maybe it's voter coverage or turnout or whatever. And that is a part of our government. That is a part of the notion of democracy. I have to sit across the table from someone who says things that make my blood boil and defend to the death their right to say it. That's the whole point. And so on our end, the way that we rationalize that and everyone at the company, you know, we all have political opinions. We all love democracy, but the company is all over the map in terms of people's political belief spectrum is that I believe that if you've been democratically elected to do your job, then you should have the tools in order to be able to do it. Now, that does not mean that I'm in any way endorsing or agreeing with their political opinion. And quite frankly, if they're able to respond more actively to constituents or communicate with them more freely, that ideally increases the level of knowledge that the constituency has about what's going on. At least they're getting more data directly from the elected representative, which equals sunshine is the best disinfectant. And so if I can get more people to communicate with their elected representative and our tool in any way facilitates that, that should theoretically rationalize things. Because if you look at it, and I agree with everything you said, in the U.S., there's a normal distribution of political opinions, right? There's a small number of people on the right and left, truly, at least I believe this. Most people are towards the center generally, but they, they are on one side or the other. Our elected representatives in many cases exhibit an inverse normal distribution, right? And so they are basically really loud on the opposite ends of the spectrum, and they don't accurately reflect where I think most of the constituents in the U.S. are. But I think part of the problem is 0.01% or less of a constituency actually ever communicates with their elected representatives, which is something that I think we need to change, right? We need more people to reach out to them. And so anyway, to, to answer your question more cleanly, it is very, very complicated. But where we err on the side of is that democracy will have all the things that you just said, and we are here to support democracy, but we have to be comfortable with a pluralistic form of government. And one side or the other, we may view as a betrayal of our foundational belief system, but it doesn't matter. That is the essence of democracy. And I think we've forgotten that in this country. And I think that's extremely problematic. What made my skin crawl just a tiny bit in what you were saying, and not really because of you, but because of what 
some of the people out there are doing when they're elected is there's a difference between my blood boils because I have a different opinion on abortion than my blood boils because you are working to like make the state of Arizona not accept the electoral vote of the people, right? Or in other ways, subvert the system. Is there anything that any elected representative can do that would make you say, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't far enough out for you, but is there somebody engages in an an act of violence? They were one of the people that goes, you know, and bludgeons of policemen going in on January 6th, trying to break into the U.S. Capitol. Is there anything that an elected representative can do that you would not have them on your system? Absolutely. Violating the law. All the things that you just mentioned would be violating the law. If it's treason, that's violating the law, right? If it's like assaulting citizens, that's violating the law. Uh, and so so, is it, so that, if they're convicted of something is what you're saying, or do or do, is there ever a judgment well, call that, I mean, I, I I'm well, just, generally, and I think you would believe this, you would agree with this too, innocent, innocent until proven guilty in our court of law for a reason. And if they're not convicted, that's, that's something that is to be respected generally. But again, we've never dealt with any situation like that. So I think that's pretty far into a logical maximum, but we believe that our government has the tools to regulate behavior of elected representatives generally. Now that may not be perfect. It may not happen as fast as we'd like it to, but even in Congress, they use, you know, the Franken commission to regulate very heavily every outbound message that comes out of these offices that's sent to more than 499 people. And so the general answer to your question is that the government regulates the behavior of our customers on our behalf so that we don't have to. We are a tool that they use. But in terms of your question, like, are we taking moralistic stances for who we will work with and who we won't? If they violate the law, for sure. And they're convicted of a crime. Absolutely. That's an easy one. But if we don't agree with their opinions, as crazy as they may be, and again, we may not make that value judgment. I'm not referencing anyone that you said specifically, but that's not our place to judge. And I think if we do make that judge, the moral hazard and the downstream consequences of us judging anything in terms of political message from a customer is anti-democratic. And again, that's not a political statement. And I'm not saying I agree or disagree with anybody. It's just a really scary place to be. You are building an ambitious company in an important space. When you think about the long term, who do you watch in terms of competition that you might think down the road is a challenge or might be after some of the same space? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of big multi-billion dollar omnibus, multi-vertical solutions that could be adapted to do the kind of things that but we who do. But who do you worry about? Who do you like keep your eye on? Uh, you know, I think all the big boys and girls that anyone would probably say, like, you know, it's possible that a Salesforce or Microsoft or one of those big companies could make a play in the space. But the truth is that most large software, again, lo- most large multi-vertical SaaS companies like that don't transition in individualized verticals well. And so I think, you know, like Viva Systems is a great example for Salesforce, like Viva Systems built the healthcare CRM space for Salesforce because they couldn't make a play in that market convincingly enough. I don't, so I don't see them as direct competition as much, although I think they're close enough that they could be adapted to do some of the things that we do. The competition I worry about more, and it's much more indirect, is Excel spreadsheets, human suffering, physical paper. If you look across the US, that's really what people are using. It's not a big platform like a Salesforce or a Microsoft. It's crimes of convenience, let's put it that way. It's using whatever tool I understand in front of me that's suboptimal for that purpose and that ultimately delivers a bad result. 
but it's, it's hard to pull people away from those uh, as hard as it would be to compete with a large software company in some cases. What about, um, there's a group called Quorum. Alex Worth runs it. Do they overlap with you at all? No, I think they're on the other side of the market. I think we solve a problem that they create. Uh, and so they, they're one of the advocacy vendors that sends a lot of mail to U.S. Congress. We help U.S. Congress manage that mail. Uh, and so they're other side. Fiscal Note bought Fireside 21, went public, has a lot of tools in the political space. They do. Yeah. Uh, I have yet to be concerned about anything that I've seen out of that company. I also think that their mission as I understand it, which is to collect and aggregate and then repurpose data or political data. They seem to be a data company, much more like a Palantir, just fundamentally is a bad match with serving elected representatives. We should not be harvesting data from constituent interactions. If, and I'm not sure that that's something that they are doing, but just the moral hazard of that mission combined with that tool is problematic for me. But you know, I know a lot of people that worked on that team before it was acquired. I think they're really good people, really hardworking. We just don't see them all that much. When you think about the data that you are collecting, you're going to know a lot, you hope, about um, about what people are interested in politically, what services they require. That can obviously be made of value to your clients, um, but also in aggregate could be valuable to the country in one form or fashion. How do you think about about what you're collecting in data and what you can do with it and what you wouldn't do with it? Yeah. So in line with my perspective critique with incomplete information before a moment ago, um, I don't believe that we should be warehousing or collecting that data or that anyone other than the elected representative should own it and have access to it. And so I don't think that we should as a company, and we, we don't, we make sure in our contracts that it's clear that our customers own their own data, because I don't think we should be extrapolating data from that. Even if there's significant economic value that we can create on top of it, I do not believe that it's an ethical use of data as I currently understand it. Now, in the future, if there are derivative products that our customers ask us to build with summary data or something like that, I think that's an interesting avenue to consider. But anyone who doesn't treat the interaction between the constituent and the elected representative as a sacrosanct, near holy, direct line of communication that should not be perforated or uh, abused in any way is in the wrong business. And so, um, yeah, I think it is very valuable, but I don't think that it makes sense for us to do something with it. I've always thought that every citizen ought to have their own account with all governments. I should be able to go somewhere to some portal and see every interaction I've had. Well, you know, it could be multiple ones with different levels, but I would love it to be all in one place where I can see that like in Boulder County, when I was 19, I used this service. It's tricky. People don't want to be tracked, but also like if that were my data, I would like to know what benefits are available to me? The government is gigantic, just federally and on a state level. Shouldn't we have a place that we go to to request a service, to find out services available, to pursue our interactions with? Is any of that part of your vision something that would be for me as a as a citizen? I love that. I love that thought. Uh, first off, yes, that was that was a big part around the original part of Indigo, but I. I would temper it with this, that there are a lot of people like yourself and, and myself who built technologies before and get really excited by technology that think that it'd be really cool to visualize data. But the question is, what better outcome does that drive for the constituent to see all my data in one place? Like to see that I went to the DMV on this day, then I went to the VA over here on this day. Even if that's interesting data that we think insights could be built on to improve services, it has to have a value proposition for the constituent. 
I do think that that's something that could create value, especially inside of interactions, complex long-term interactions with individual agencies. Like for instance, the VA. I mean, I've heard heartbreaking stories of veterans trying to unlock psychotropic medication through the VA or something like that. Everything that's time-consuming, immigration, like I have sponsored a lot of people through employment for green cards or, or citizenship, and it can be a 10-year process. You can't easily find out what stage you're in or why you're stuck on a pile somewhere. All of oh, that yeah. should be made transparent, ultimately. That I totally agree with. Yeah, yeah that, that absolutely. And I think USDS, the US Digital Service, I'm sure you're very familiar with, you know, they, they created an open auth platform for government. I think it was called login.gov or something like that to provide the base level tools and platform for agencies to begin to do that. I think the question is, at what level of prioritization inside of the executive leadership in these agencies are they focusing on like customer and service delivery? I think if you are focusing on that, logging in identity management, like for the constituent is a gigantic part of like service delivery, right? We are very interested in that at Indigov, and there are, there may be or may not be features in our roadmap specifically to that effect. But I will say that it's it's very very difficult to get government to embrace that type of service delivery. They're just not there yet. Generally, not all governments. I would think smaller somewhere. governments would be more open to it. Yeah. Yeah. Some cities are. I've seen some cities uh, do some really interesting things with that uh, in terms of like casework tracking numbers, like public goods. But it's easier to innovate, I think, in smaller cities where there's less downstream and upstream dependencies for every change that you make. At a federal government, you make one tweak and you got like 85 layers of people that like come at you from both ends. So, yeah, I think people are going to do that. I think it's going to take 10 to 15 years before you'll see that in real significant public circulation. Uh, it's just going to take a while, but we'll get there. When you deal with Comcast or Verizon or uh, any of the companies for whom customer service, I guess, is difficult at scale, but often frustrate the crap out of me, do you think, oh, they should be on a system like we have to interact? Or oh, is, yeah. that, is that a different space that... No, I mean, it's a space we'll never go into, but uh, I will say they actually do have tools like what we do in a lot of those companies. They just use them really badly and they have bad incentivization up and down the pipe in order to be able to, to do things. I think at companies like Comcast, and this is also an acute problem in government, it does not appear to me, I and mean, I've never worked in a Comcast customer service department, so I'm extending a little bit, but in most failed customer service interactions, it's because the customer service representative does not have an adequate amount of latitude to actually make the request come true for the person that they're serving. And so it's overly bureaucratic, overly focused. And so I think that's problematic. It's not a tool problem, I think, for them. It's a culture and process problem for the most part. At least that's my guess. For your company right now, what's the biggest challenge to getting it to where you want it to go? It's a combination of things, but partially we're a very innovative solution at the vast majority of places in which we sell into government. And so we have to educate the market at the same time as selling to them, which is interesting. We've gotten very good at that. But if you'd asked me like a year or two ago, I'd say that was the biggest problem. I think for us at this point, it's operationalization of company growth. We've dramatically expanded the footprint of the business over the past several years during COVID. We've 11X'd and tripled and gone and blah, 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 just so many different multiples of growth. I think it's difficult for the team in some cases to keep up with that pace of growth. The good news is unlike most private market companies, our customers are budgeted and they're purchasing. They need us now more than ever. Rolling them out, training them, customizing them, supporting them is a lot of work. That's why we raised all the venture capital that we did. That's why we've moved as quickly as we have because we need more people always. We need more bodies to expand. That's a big one. I'd say the other one is the pace with which government em embraces SaaS. 
There's some states that are much further along than others, but you know, a lot of our customers were the only cloud vendor they've ever talked to. Understanding the security ramifications of using the cloud, even one as secure as ours with FedRAMP authorized this and that and SOC 2 and so on and so forth. We've got all these security certifications and protocols, but it's still a new muscle. So that takes some time. I mean, you've highlighted your growth. I know one can grow very fast on a percentage basis when one's bootstrapping and small. When you're tiny, right? <laughs> right. I, I, I've done that. Like how many people are working for you now and what sort of scale are you in terms of revenue? The full team size, if you include everybody, is, is over 100 folks. And so we're a pretty beefy team at this size for the scope of company that we are. In terms of footprint, we currently serve 180 million Americans are serviced through Indigov every single day. Does that mean if you have a senator for, from California, you count everyone in California as a... Uh, as sure, service. but we have a lot more coverage than that. Yes, that would be an interpretation if I was, if I was extending really heavily, but yes, uh, we, we, uh, we would. But we're servicing pretty much every level of government across the country in 42 different states. So we have thousands and thousands of daily active users just in the official side, like the reps and the staffers themselves across the U.S. And so we've had quite a bit of growth we're very proud of. Well, it's certainly an accomplishment to get to this size and opportunity. What, what do you think you've learned about, about running a business and scaling a business from this particular one that you, that you would want to share with other people who might have interest in GovTech or, or just entrepreneurship in general? Oh, so many things. So I, I literally write down everything I learn into a, a folder and I have, I'm not exaggerating, thousands of pages of notes of stuff just because there's so much. I mean, you're, you're always learning and you got you to gotta mark it, which I recommend anybody do, by the way, just write stuff down. So a couple of things top of mind. One, in GovTech, one of the biggest problems is sequencing and, and basically sales cycle planning. And so it's really difficult to raise money if it's going to take you two to three years with one customer to get in and get a contract. It's also extremely difficult if you're betting the entire business on one large contract. It's also extremely difficult to move forward if you're subbing to other prime vendors working with the government as opposed to building your own thing. And so I think you have to find an avenue outside of those old ways of doing things to scale. We sell direct to customers and we do it without any prime vendors. We do it ourselves. We've never subbed to any other primes. The biggest thing that I've learned at Indigov is that while I am a product person and I think product is a requisite to building a company, the most important thing, especially in complex markets like GovTech, is go to market. And I referenced this before. And when I say go to market, what I really mean is, is not just marketing and how you position yourself and stuff like that, but the sequencing with which you enter markets, through what points, through what customers, and how you choose your early customers really intentionally, how you build your cap table, how you build your team and sequence to support sales and growth. Everything we did at the company from the ground up once I built into, and I designed the first version of the product myself, was all go-to-market, all go-to-market sequencing. I would say if you're a founder and you're looking to raise money or build a business plan, spend the first chunk of your time on product, get that out of the way, validate it to within an inch of its life, make sure that it's exactly what people need and they will pay for it, not just that you're excited about it. That's the first thing. And then the second you feel product is at a decent state, heavily optimized for go-to-market and then come back to product later. That's what we did. And that's different than any other business I've run in the past. Have any of your investors been valuable beyond money? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I chose them specifically for that. Um, I chose investors who built GovTech companies before and understood what it takes to do that. And so they could provide advice from how to legally structure the business to how to make sure you're in compliance to what the importance of these different things are, this over here. 
um, other investors we had are our customers. I think the best companies are funded by customers. So government can actually fund us, but people who used to be in government in these roles, kind of being on our cap table, helping us navigate you know, complicated situations is great because government not only buys differently from the private market, as you mentioned before, but they buy services and relationships as opposed to products and technology. And so understanding who you should talk to to navigate really complex hierarchies is tough. The product ultimately has to speak for itself and people have to get excited to use it and it has to solve a problem. But the entry point for the first conversations for that first core reference clients was crucial. So yeah, our, our investors, there's nobody on my cap table that isn't strategically valuable to the company's growth and sales in particular. Earlier, you sort of indicated that like the B Corp road and some of the other business models that are out there that people sometimes choose in civic spaces wasn't your idea of the right way to go. Do you want to flesh that out a little bit more? Because I have talked to a lot of people recently who are really working to democratize their company in one fa form or fashion because they, they're also working in the space, whether it's you know labor software or campaign software or whatever. They're concerned about how their employees and their stakeholders are invested in it and how the profit motive plays off and the long-term kind of ability to do the right thing for the country and the democracy. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that, it's a fascinating, really, really deep question, right? Um, so first off, I'll say, I think B Corps and double bottom line businesses and so on and so forth are right models for some types of companies. But my general attitude towards them, I think this is maybe a little bit of a, a hot take, fortunately, or a little bit controversial, is that I think it's misplaced energy. I think the sole focus of a business is to deliver value to the people that use the product. That's your entire purpose. Anything outside of that, in my opinion, is a, is a really critical distraction from what the business is there to do. And I think creates an incentive structure that sets the company up for an inefficient allocation of resources. Let's put it that way. I think the challenge for you know, people who are very cause-focused entrepreneurs like I am is to build a business model where, again, like we said before, there is a positive relationship between revenue generation and accomplishment of the mission. There is no higher mission that Indigov can possibly achieve than getting our tool in the hands of as many people that can use it to strengthen our democracy, make them better at their job, and so on and so forth. If I created Indigov as a B Corp or a double bottom line business outside of that, that would be but a distraction to what we were trying to accomplish. The way that I typically look at that is it's a misalignment of intellectual horsepower inside of a business to do that. But again, it may be right for some companies. It just isn't right for us. I will also say companies that build themselves or even nonprofits to do this in some sense, when you are not using the market to drive your product or investment in your product or others, it's a lot harder to scale. It's a lot harder to draw capital. It's a lot harder to do more difficult things from a technology perspective and hire really smart people. The revenue side of things and all the revenue targets we have are to unlock our ability to accomplish our mission at a greater scale. I think capitalism still works for that, but capitalism requires a higher degree of responsibility from founders who are cause focused. It doesn't require an IRS driven business model in order to accomplish it. I think it's very useful for, to have your articulation of that in contrast to some other people. And I think it's worth people thinking about like when they start their businesses, what, what is the priority? Because their you know, focus is a huge thing when you, when you have limited time and resources to, to make things happen. Well, I do want to say though, and you're a perfect example of this, right? Like you, you're a very cause focused technologist who was looking to affect a, a positive change in the world. And you've done that in many ways. I think 
you got to give entrepreneurs a break to some degree. I think capitalism has its problems and, you know, everybody likes to, you know, poo-poo all over capitalism lately with good reason. It, there, there's an enormous amount of inequality in our economic system, which requires addressing. And I think capitalism, again, requires a higher degree of responsibility in order to operate ethically, because I don't think that, you know, ethics are the core driving idea of capitalism. I don't think anybody would say that it is, right? Other than the ethics of providing for people and creating economic well-being that ultimately increases human development indices over time. But you got to give entrepreneurs a break. If someone has like a cause focus and they're trying to create economic activity and jobs, and like you said, paying for immigration, green cards and things like that, that's a virtuous thing. Like we should respect the virtuous entrepreneur. I'm not, I'm not talking about myself here, just generally. We should respect people trying to create economic value and give them a break. I would never uh, be so bold as to say that an entrepreneur who's chosen a B Corp or a double bottom line for their company, it was the wrong choice for them. It just didn't make sense for us. That's how we looked at it. And so I, I have enormous respect for people that, that want to create a change in the world, building a business. It is a very hard thing to do. So anyway, just to clarify, I don't want to, anybody who's got a B Corp and doing great things, I don't want them to feel bad. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh man. I mean, you and I could probably talk for 15 hours about like the state of democracy and like what it's meant to be. But I think one of the really interesting questions today, like given where our society is, is what is democracy meant to be? And, and you kind of engendered this with your question before about, you know, there are democratically elected officials who are saying wild stuff that is in some cases like, you know, wildly immoral or irresponsible. And how does that exist or coexist with our idea of what democracy should be? And so I think in this country, we're having an enormous existential crisis about who we are. And to be honest, before Indigo, I spent years reading basically a book a week on political theory about the U.S. and what this country is. I believe in the American exceptionalist view of democracy and what it is supposed to be. I believe in a representative form of government. But I think that we as a country have, have lost a bit of sight as to what it's supposed to be and how we can support it and how we should participate in it. And I think we're headed for trouble unless we have really strong political and cultural leaders that can kind of drive that focus that, you know, democracy is involvement. Democracy is the part that we do together. Uh, and so anyway, you and I could talk for 15 hours on that. I just think it's such a beefy topic. Alex, it, among those uh, political theorists or other thinkers that you were reading, uh, is there anyone that stands out that you would recommend Oh, uh, I mean, there's so many really interesting foundational documents and, and novels that that made up the founding fathers' understanding of what our democracy should be, right? I mean, Locke and Hume, and um, it was one that uh, I thought was a really interesting. I, I got to find it actually. This has been a while since I read the book. Uh, one moment here, let me let me look for it. Uh, but there was one in particular that I thought was a really interesting critique of it. But I think. One of the one of the interesting things that I recommend people do is their story, their books like Founding Brothers and others that I think people should read before they get into heavy political theory that help you understand the mindset of the of the founding fathers when they actually got to a point where they were creating the Constitution and the First Continental Congress. I think you have to understand who they are as people in the context, of the time in which they live before you get deep into the political theory stuff. I would always recommend starting with books like that. Let me pull some up here. There's a really interesting one I read recently called The People Versus Democracy that talks about that populism is kind of illiberal and non-democratic in a lot of ways. And I think that's really apropos for kind of where we are today. The other one that I've been really obsessed with, to be honest with you, is I've been reading a lot of postmodern philosophy, Foucault and Derrida and Judith Butler and a number of others. Um, I, I have a lot of issues with postmodernism uh, and its current incarnation. And I think in many ways it's very illiberal. 
Uh, and I don't think we put a really heavy face on it in the U.S. And that's not a political statement by any means. I just think there's a lot of weird logic and that postmodernism is a very bad reaction to liberalism. I'm a liberalist uh, to my core uh, in many ways. And so um, there's a couple of really good books on that. I'll send you a list. Maybe you can add, add to the podcast notes. I'm scrolling through one of my famously long lists of notes I've taken on books I've read recently, trying to find the names of some of them. It's Yasha Mount who wrote The People Versus Democracy, and he's written a lot of good stuff of late. So maybe you're directing your attention in a sensible way. Alex, it's been a, a, a very fun to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. Anything else you want to say? No, I really appreciate the the time. It was a great conversation. Uh, thank you for all the really thoughtful questions. And you know, all I can say is that I hope that people who are listening to the podcast uh, decide to get involved in their government in some way, whether it's reaching out to their elected representatives or working at a company like yours or like mine that that have missions to kind of focus on this. And, you know, again, democracy is a, is a participatory form of government. So we all have to take that to heart. We all need to, to pitch in and help out and we're helping in our way. It's not a spectator sport. No, it isn't. That was Alex Kutz. He's at indigov.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.